The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, Michael Green was a British theologian and Anglican priest who passed away about three years ago, but he had studied ad nauseum the early, the, the, the patterns of the early church. And in one place in his writings, he handsomely sums up his work in this way, saying, the Christian faith has been around so long that it's easy to forget what it was like when it was new. <laughs> this morning... I want, us to, to, I want us to refresh ourselves a bit of that newness through this text here in Acts chapter 2. And the, the reason that we're doing this, okay, is that this newness, this refreshing picture of the early church has greatly influenced and shaped our philosophy of ministry around here. Now, philosophy of ministry, let's make sure we define our fancy terms, right? A philosophy of ministry is the why behind the what of how we do church, And so we have a mission statement. We exist to make and mature and to unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God. That's our mission as a church. That's what we seek to do. A philosophy of ministry then answers both how are you going to do that, okay, and why do it that way. That's what a philosophy of ministry does. And so two questions I want to address this morning as we continue our topical series here on the church. Number one, why gospel communities? Okay, why do we seek to make disciples in this way? And then number two, what exactly is a gospel community? Just practically speaking, right? This is important for a number of reasons. Um, Many of you, most of you in this room are in a gospel community. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, 100% of our active members are currently engaged in a gospel community. That's pretty incredible, by the way. It's pretty incredible. Um, It's that central to what we do. In fact, if you become a member, we really want to connect you into a gospel community. We're not legalistic about it, okay? We understand there may be circumstances where that that you you can't be involved in one, um, but it's really important to us. And so for you who are already in a gospel community, my hope is that this morning would be encouraging to you, uh, that it would be renewing to you. I pray that it would renew your focus, and the importance that you place on your involvement in a gospel community and encourage you to dig in even deeper. Right, if you're newer around here and you're not yet connected in a gospel community, my, my goal this morning for you is to convince you that you want to be. All right? And finally, if you're just checking things out this morning, maybe this is your first time with us. And you're like, what on earth is a gospel community? Um, maybe, maybe you're here, maybe you're not a Christian yet, or you're new or renew to the church, just checking the dipstick on this engine we call Christianity, right? What I want you to hear is a beautiful vision for thick community centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we seek to live out here. And we love for God to draw you into that. So why gospel communities? Well, as I already mentioned, our our reasoning for this all begins with this picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2. And so go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 if you haven't already. It's page 911 in the the Pew Bible if you're using that. Okay, this is the earliest and clearest summary that we have of what the early church looked like and what they did. Okay, what do they do? Well, Luke tells us. Luke, he's the writer of the the book of Acts, right? He tells us, doesn't he? He actually tells us pretty clearly. In this passage, Luke tells us about six practices, three results, and two contexts of the local church, believe it or not, right? 
Six practices, three results, and two contexts of the early church. Look at the practices first. In verse 42, Luke writes that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? That's the first practice. First and foremost, they were centered upon the apostolic teaching. Instruction was a key component of this early community. This is part of what Jesus told them to do when he said, Go therefore and make disciples. Make them of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So devoting themselves to this teaching, that's the first practice. Hearing about Jesus and his gospel. Hearing about this good news, right? Hearing about the goodness of Jesus and the the glory of Jesus. Hearing about how Jesus fulfills everything that the Old Testament points to. In fact, they're learning that the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet, just the Old. And the apostles were teaching Jesus from it and also teaching Jesus in general about his life and his miracles, his teachings that they had encountered firsthand, his death, his resurrection, his lordship. The second practice listed in verse 42 is the fellowship. This is the the Greek word koinonia. It's a favorite word that Paul uses when he writes uh, his letters. It it carries a meaning of sharing in common. It's often used to describe a type of mutuality that exists in marriage. And what Luke is doing by using this word is he's pointing to the fact that fellowship, okay, deep community, underscores the personal and interactive relationships in the early church. They, They weren't just getting together for a sort of surface level small group. Okay, they, they, they weren't just coming to, together for an intellectually stimulating yet relationally void Bible study. No, there's a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. Third is the breaking of bread. And some point to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper here in this passage, equating the breaking of the bread with the Lord's Supper. That's probably correct, especially in verse 42. It also goes wider though to the fact that they're just eating together all the time. Verse 46 talks about breaking bread in their homes. They shared meals together. In fact, for a while in the early church, the the Lord's Supper was actually a part of that wider, bigger meal that they shared together. So they came together and they remembered the Lord's Supper, but they also just hung out and ate together, shared meals together as they shared life together. The fourth practice then was prayer. They never stopped praying. If you go back and read Acts chapter 1, you, you, you realize that there were 10 days between the ascension of Jesus. Okay, so after Jesus rose from the grave, he appears and then he ascends up to the right hand of the Father, right? And there's 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and then Pentecost. And in those 10 days, do you know what the disciples were doing? Praying. And they continue to pray. In fact, the verb here, devoting or devoted, is the very same word that's used in Acts 1.14, where during those 10 days, we're told, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It's the same word here in our passage. In other words, they haven't stopped. A community at prayer is something that Luke emphasizes about the early Christian church. They were seeking God's direction. They lived dependently upon God. They're not simply operating by their, their feelings or their, their gut intuition, right? But actively submitting themselves to the Lord's direction. 
Now, before we go further and look at the last two practices that we see in this paragraph, I also want us to hover over this word devoted for a little bit. Okay, and the reason I want to hover over it here is because these four things and the next two, they're not just, you know, they're not just nice religious things that these early Christians did when they got around to it, had some free time, and the demands of life weren't too heavy. It's how they lived. In fact, this passage isn't a, a prescription. This passage is a, a description. This isn't an instruction manual or a checklist for how to do religion. It's a picture of their actual reality. It's a picture not just of what they did, but how they lived their lives. They, they didn't just you know, take in a little bit of teaching, like you might snag a random podcast on your lunch break or while you're working out. They were devoted to the teaching. That they were steadfastly committed to gathering together for the teaching. They didn't just hang out together. They were devoted to fellowship. Devoted to being together. Verse 46 describes a daily interaction there. They didn't just break bread together because, well, you know, shoot, man. Man's got to eat, you know. No, they were devoted to that practice. And they didn't just pray once in a while, sort of lackadaisically, when they really needed God to do something. No, it says they were devoted to prayer, devoted to it. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God's Church, he says that the word devote here in Acts 2.42 can actually be translated addicted to. Addicted to. That gets the point across. We understand the connotations of that. These early Christians were, they were addicted to the apostles' teaching. They lived as though they were addicted to the fellowship, addicted to the breaking of bread, addicted to prayer. Why? Because they had come to know Jesus in a real and saving way. That's why. Where they had come to understand their, their sinfulness. They had been cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit. And simultaneously, they had, they'd come to know God's holiness. They'd come to realize that they had come to faith in Jesus. And that by trusting in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, their sin was atoned for. They were forgiven and set free. Born again to a new life and dwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. Infused now with purpose and meaning to glorify God in everything that they do. And because of that. They lived lives devoted to these things. It wasn't a program. It wasn't a discipleship curriculum or or some process that they carefully laid out. It was the natural overflow of their exuberant faith in Jesus. Two more practices that we find here then in Verses 44 and 45, they, they, they shared and, and met each other's needs. Look at 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they lived generously. Okay, and this wasn't early communism, just in case you were wondering, because it wasn't mandated. Okay, it was completely voluntary and inspired by the love of God that he had put into their hearts to bless and share with one another. And then the sixth and last practice, verse 47, they praised God, praised him. Active praise and adoration and worship of God marked these early Christians. 
Active praise and adoration that, that wells up and overflows from knowing once they were poor and powerless. Right? Once they were the lost and the lonely. They were the outcast orphans. But God in heaven had sent his one and only son. And through him, through faith in Jesus Christ, they were adopted into his family, made his own. Recipients now of every spiritual blessing and heirs of eternal life. Don't you see? God had become for them more intensely and densely real than anything else in their life. How could they not praise him? How could they not? And so they devoted themselves. They were addicted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. They lived generously and actively praised God. It's what they did because it's who they were. They lived this stuff because Jesus was so real to them. So He had so changed them and transformed them that to live any differently wouldn't have made any sense at all. As they lived this way, Luke tells us there were three results. Awe, favor, and growth. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I want you to catch the ordering of the wording here. See, it says that many wonders and signs were being done, and and they were, right? In fact, the very next passage in Acts chapter 3, we read of how Peter and John healed a crippled dude. They just healed him, right? And if you read that, we're told that when that happened, everyone was completely blown away by that. They come running together to figure out what the heck is going on here, right? But it says in Acts 2.43, before it talks about the wonders and signs, that awe came upon every soul. See, the awe in chapter 2 was not the result of the wonders and the signs. It was a pre-existing condition. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And then we read, many wonders and signs are being done. Do you see that? You see the awe as preceding the miracles? We tend to think, or live, at least live as if it's true, that awe comes as the result of something awesome, right? Something miraculous, something amazing, something that, oh my goodness, I just can't explain, right? Here, though, it seems that awe came as the result of what we might call pretty darn ordinary. Living devoted to God's word devoted to, the, to living life with other Christians, prayer, praise, worship, living generously. How's your awe these days? You know, just on a, on a scale of, of one to 10, on an awe scale, right? Where are you at? One being, I ain't got no awe at all, and 10, let's take the roof off this place, like right now, you know? Where are you at? And do you see your awe as related to these ordinary means of grace? Or are you waiting around for something awesome? The second result of them living this way is that verse 47, they had favor with all the people. In other words, the ways in which they were living were attractive to those outside of the faith. 
there was a distinctiveness. And their distinctiveness was on display. Let me ask you, does that mark you and the other Christians that you know? Do the distinctive ways that you live your life draw people in? Do they draw people towards Jesus and towards the church? Or does it push them away? Now, you know, I'm not saying that everything that we hold to as Christians is going to be applauded in our culture, you know? People in our culture aren't like, yay, Christian view of marriage. You know, yay, Christian view of creation and men and women. Sexuality. I'm not saying that being a Christian won't bring about persecution. It will. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But it's also clear here that for the earliest Christians, the practices that they were engaged in were attractive. The way they worshipped, the things that they were devoted to, the ways in which they loved one another, and how generosity spilled over to all. It earned them favor with all the people. And then lastly, the third result, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. They didn't have a grand scheme for numerical growth. They didn't whiteboard this out. You know, okay, by end of 2022, we want to see X number. They didn't, you know, none of that sort of stuff. They didn't have metrics, didn't have goals, didn't have a strategic plan. The Lord did it. And he did it, let's not miss, as they just lived out these practices. As they lived lives devoted to God and to one another, the Lord brought about the growth. It wasn't over-convoluted. There wasn't some huge, carefully crafted strategy. They had encountered the real Jesus. Their lives had been really changed, and as they really lived that out, they experienced awe, favor, and growth. It wasn't overly complicated. Which leads us then from the six practices and the three results to the two contexts. Look at verse 46. What are the two contexts that are named here? The temple. Okay, that's the the first one. They attended the temple. They they gathered together in the temple courts as the ecclesia, as the called out and gathered together ones. They gathered there to corporately, all together, worship Jesus. And then secondly, they gathered in their homes. They did both. They didn't just gather in the temple. They didn't just gather in the homes. Day by day, they attended the temple and met in homes. And that's about it. As far as we know, these early Christians didn't, they didn't all quit their day jobs um, or move into a commune together. I don't see that in here. No, their workplaces and their neighbors were likely the context for where they gained favor. The context from which God brought the growth in the normal everyday places of their lives. And like I said, this text has greatly influenced and and shaped our philosophy of ministry around here. As a church, we gather together every week, all together for corporate worship, and then we gather in homes throughout the city, throughout the week, and that's about it. In, In both of those contexts, we devote ourselves to the word, hearing it preached on Sundays and then applying it into our lives when we meet in homes for our gospel communities. We fellowship, seeking to build deep, thick, authentic relationships that are built upon the gospel. We break bread around this table here, around the dining room table in a home like my gospel community did this past Wednesday. We pray, we live generously, we praise God continuously for all he is and all he's done. And that's about it. 
Now, sure, we have some other things that we do. There's a women's Bible study. There's a men's reading group. There's a mom's group. We do men's gatherings from time to time. There's, there's classes that we offer sometimes, like the, the gospel DNA class. There's a grand pillars group. And I'm not minimizing those in any sort of way, but all those things are intended to supplement, not supplant, the two primary contexts for our church, Sunday gatherings and gospel communities. And one of the things that we're really self-conscious about around here is not becoming so overly programmed and overscheduled with Christian tasks and programs that we no longer have time to live out our Christianity amongst those who aren't Christians yet. It's easy to do in church world. It's really easy in church world to fill your calendar and your life with lots of good churchy things to the point where you don't have any time to build and cultivate relationships with those who are far from the Lord. We want to avoid that. It's hard to have favor with all people if you're never amongst them. That's part of the unleashing part of our mission statement. We want to make and mature missionary disciples of Jesus who are then unleashed to live missionary lives for Jesus in the ordinary and everyday places and stations of their lives. But we want the church, you know, we we want the church to not just go to church. We want the church to be the church so that those who are not the church might become a part of the church. That can't happen if we're just focused on running outreach programs that only other Christians come to. That can't happen if we're overloaded with service projects with people that we have no other relational connection with. That can't happen if we're too busy for it. Busyness is missional kryptonite. That's what busyness is. Nothing deprives the church of its missional power quite like busyness. And sometimes we have to admit that that busyness is religious busyness. And so Sunday gatherings and gospel communities, those are the primary contexts for us as a church. And you might say, well, man, okay, cool, but I kind of like to be more active than that, great. Have your non-Christian neighbors over for dinner more than once. Like try it like every month, you know, make a rhythm out of, out of doing that and, and, and so on. You say, well, that's maybe not really what I had in mind. I think it might have been what Jesus had in mind. Actually engaging with those who are far from him and not just becoming over busy with a bunch of religious tasks. Again, Sunday gatherings and gospel communities, those are the primary context for us as a church. We talked in week two of this series back in January about the Sunday gathering. Talked all about that. Let's turn now more squarely to gospel communities. What exactly is a gospel community? Well, a gospel community is the primary vehicle by which we pursue our mission to make mature and unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God. It's our primary vehicle for our mission. We currently have 12 of them. They're made up of singles and retirees, young families and empty nesters, Typically 8 to 15 adults or so, and anywhere from 0 to 150 kids, you know. Um, they're, they're not affinity groups. They're not affinity groups. Because we find great value in being a part of a, a community that's centered on the gospel with people who are in different life stages than ourselves. They bring together people of different vocations, socioeconomic backgrounds. They're diverse in all the ways that we're diverse as a church. Sometimes you find yourself in a gospel community with some of your friends. 
Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you become friends over time. Sometimes you find yourself in a GC with perhaps people you'd never otherwise be friends with. But what brings a gospel community together is actually hardwired into the name. What brings us together is our shared interest in Jesus and his gospel. And what do they do? Well, practically speaking, each week our gospel communities meet in what we call our primary gatherings. These are the regular scheduled, again, usually weekly gatherings in which we come together. And each gospel community looks, you know, just a, a little bit different. Our GC leaders enjoy a, a lot of freedom to, to shape things according to their needs. It's certainly a regular part of the diet of a gospel community's primary gathering is to open God's word. Maybe read through the passage that was just preached the prior Sunday and apply it into our lives. Devoting ourselves, you could say, to God's word. It's important to note that when we do that, we're not simply aiming for a Bible study. A GC is about not just information, but formation. And so we seek to apply God's word and apply the gospel into our lives to share openly and honestly about our questions and our doubts and our joys and our sorrows, things that we're struggling with, sins we're battling, victories we're winning, sanctification that is happening. You know, in, in my gospel community, we typically do that twice a month. We, we've been using the GC guys that Brad and, and Craig have been putting out, tracking with this series. And then once a month, then we just gather for a meal. We did it this past Wednesday. It was taco night. Taco night, yeah. Everybody's stomach's rumbling now. And on those nights, listen, the, the conversation then on those nights is much more wide-ranging, much more about sharing life and informal, yet intentional and formational. It's fellowship. It's, it's breaking bread and sharing life together. Right now in my GC then, about once a month, we meet just for prayer. And we've been having someone on those nights share their story just kind of talking about the, the formative events and things that have happened in their life, including their interactions with Jesus and how they got saved. But it's not just their testimony. It's talking about sort of these main aspects of their life that have shaped who they are as a human being. Defining moments, we might say. And then we pray over that person. We share other things that, we would like, that we'd all like prayer for. We pray for one another. Sometimes we pray for unbelievers that we're engaging outside of the context of the church in the everydayness of our life. And so these primary gatherings, um, those are the primary gatherings. They might look different in each of your gospel communities. You might get to, together every week and, and focus on you know, the scriptures and, and applying the passage to your, to your life every week. But in this, we also seek for our gospel communities to, to not just be a once-a-week gathering, but to live life more fully in community, extending and modeling grace to one another and practicing the one another's of scripture. That takes place in regular and irregular ways, scheduled and unscheduled ways, and certainly not just planned out by the leader of the group. It's people reaching out to one another from within the group and connecting for coffee or, or a meal or to pray together, go for a walk or any number of other things as life and time permits. Additionally, we purpose to live our lives as missionary disciples together in the context of gospel communities. Again, sharing sometimes names of people that we're seeking to engage with the gospel. Inviting the gospel community to pray for them. Or pray for us as we seek to engage with them. At times, inviting someone that we're engaging to join the GC for a meal night. 
for a barbecue, introducing them to the community and asking God to draw them into it, encouraging one another in this work, asking one another about it too. And listen, we, we all need this. Like we, we all need this kind of community, even the introverts in the room, right? One of my pastor friends says it this way. He says, every one of us is a saint in isolation. It's in community that our real weaknesses and flaws and sins are exposed. That's why community is essential, not optional, for transformation. We can't become the people God wants us to become outside of community. See, here's what community does. Community exposes us, doesn't it? It lets, others, it lets others in, see? But it also exposes us to the grace of God through each other. And we need that for transformation to happen. The Bible has a lot of commands that, that center around community. Love one another, care for one another, teach one another, encourage one another, and a ton more. You can't do those alone. You can't do them in an accountable way on your own terms outside of a committed community that's going to actually hold you accountable to it. I love what Richard Plass and Jim Cofield say in their book, The Relational Soul, on this. They say, in community, our demand that life takes shape on our own terms eventually comes out. Our demand. In community, our insistence that others be what we need and want them to be is sooner or later exposed. We all love the idea of community, don't we? In theory, in theory we do. Sounds nice. Community, yes, that sounds good. Um, but anyone who's been a part of a gospel community for very long at all realizes it's not just something that we do. It does something to us. It's an affront to our autonomy. It reveals our desire that life, ta life takes shape on our own terms. Like it comes out. We're all saints in isolation. It's only in community that we become exposed. But through that exposure, real transformation takes place. Now that takes time. It takes a lot of time. Most good things do. You know that taco night I was talking about on last Wednesday? Good taco nights don't happen from a microwave. They take time. Good meals take time. You can't microwave it. A really good sports team doesn't just emerge. It's a, it's a product of spending lots of time together practicing so that when you see Patrick Mahomes drop back and throw a pass over here, right, when his receiver's over here, but he, he throws this pass anyway. Before the receiver even cuts, he's throwing the pass over here because he knows his receiver so well that he knows while the ball is in the air, his receiver's going to cut underneath it and, touch, and catch it and go for a touchdown and then lose eventually. But, you know, that's... <laughs> That, that doesn't just happen, man. That takes time. Good gospel community takes time too. I love how Ray Ortland has put this into a little formula. He says that what everyone needs is gospel plus safety plus time. Lots of gospel, multiple exposures to the gospel over and over again in different ways, in different seasons of your life, from different places in the word. Lots of safety. A place where it's safe to ask stupid questions. You say, I thought there weren't any stupid questions. No, they're stupid questions, you know. But a safe place to ask them. A safe place to ask them. A place where it's okay to admit, I don't, I don't know the answer, and it's okay. 
A place where we can sometimes be comfortable sitting in the midst of unconsolable things. A a place where we can slowly allow ourselves to be exposed and vulnerable. A context where we can admit our struggles as sinners, saved by grace, and not be condemned, not be shamed, but rather experience a safe place for confession and repentance to be worked out in all its glorious messiness. A place where we can seek depth, embrace that mess, and speak truth and love. I hope you realize that gospel and safety, those two parts of this equation, are a thousand percent intertwined here. You cannot get that kind of safety without the gospel. See, the gospel says, I don't have it all together, and neither do you, right? Jesus has it all together, but none of us do. And the gospel tells us that I know that you don't have it all together, and you know that I don't have it all together. And it tells us, therefore, that I know that you know that I don't have it all together, and you know that I know that you don't have it all together, and therefore, (laughs) the, the playing field gets leveled, right? That we are all clinging to Jesus. It levels the playing fields and, and cultivates a context of safety born out of humility sown into us by the gospel. This is what we mean when we say that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. It's why good gospel culture matters. You never get true gospel culture without gospel doctrine. That's why it's, it always stirs something in us as your pastors sometimes when we hear people say, I want to I continue to be a part of a gospel community at Two Pillars, but I want to do my Sunday morning stuff somewhere else and take in different teaching because maybe I don't like the teaching of Two Pillars. <laughs> the two are a thousand percent interrelated. You can't separate the safety that you experience in a gospel community from the gospel aspect and the gospel doctrine of that gospel community and this church. And so lots of gospel early then, lots of time. Like time enough to rethink our lives at a deep level because we're complex and real change takes time. Sanctification, just in my own personal experience as a human being and as my experience as a pastor, doesn't, doesn't happen, generally speaking, overnight. Gospel plus safety plus time, but some of us are too anxious and we hit the eject button on a gospel community without giving it the time. It takes time. Gospel, safety, time. That's a good recipe for a good gospel community. What that means is the time part, man, we got to dig in. There's ups and downs to the life of a gospel community, lots of ordinariness. It's not a hype context. Okay, you might not leave each week with, you know, incredible Jesus-sponsored warm and fuzzies. um, But over time, the small, regular deposits of fellowship and prayer and sharing a meal together and opening God's word together, sharing our lives together, it shapes you and it forms you. Now, we have to acknowledge we also all have different expectations that we bring into this business, don't we? Oh, my goodness, we do. 
And a part of the challenge of doing life together in the context of a gospel community is learning how and when to, to lay those down at certain times or hold them loosely at other times. Sixty-some years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, which are still super helpful to reflect on as we talk about community and gospel community. He wrote, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. That quote's worth the price of the sermon. I know it's free, but it's, it's, it's worth something. You know, it's a good quote. It's a good quote. Listen, a gospel community isn't going to be perfect. However you define perfect. It's not going to be perfect for you. It won't do everything for you. It can't. It's imperfect because we are. It's, a, it's messy because we are. It's ordinary because we are. And I point that out because we've been doing this now for nearly 12 years as a church. Like, and we've learned some things, right? Like a, a GC won't meet all of your spiritual needs. It won't. So if your gospel community is the only time other than Sunday morning where you open your Bible, pray, or give thought to the sermon and applying it to your life or, or other people in, in your life, other Christians in your life, if that's how you approach your gospel community, you will levy a weight upon it that it was never intended to bear. Additionally, a gospel community, it won't meet all of your relational needs, all of your friendship needs. And if you demand that it does, you'll crush it. One of the strengths of gospel communities is that, Lord willing, you end up living in deeper community with a closer-knit group of people. We've talked about the importance and the value of that. One of the weaknesses is it can sometimes make it harder to build relationships within the church outside of your gospel community, which, again, is why we do things. Like, we supplement them with things like men's gatherings and women's Bible studies. We also have some unique ideas coming your way for this summer and how we want to pursue some of that. But, but also, also, building relationships is something that you've got to own beyond the bounds of systems and structures that the church as an institution puts in place for you. That's just part of being a human. You ever notice that when we use Christianese phrases like do life together, right? That we all have different unspoken definitions of that. We never, we never actually say what we mean. But one of the reasons that we all have different definitions of that is because we're all different. I mentioned it earlier, but we've always fairly intentionally not organized our gospel communities around stage of life. But we also have to acknowledge that the stages of life that people are in within a gospel community affect the gospel community. Your age, your energy, your health, all those things impact how you do life together, do they not? Your station in life, the various responsibilities that you hold, 
If you have kids, the ages of kids affects things. And believe it or not, it doesn't actually get easier as they get older. Recently, I was talking to a group of Acts 29 pastors in a, in a cohort that, that I'm in. And several of them with churches at pretty similar stages to life as ours. Um, so that as many of the families in their church as their kids hit the teenage years, they, how they did gospel communities or whatever they call them, because we all call them something different, right? But how they did that actually had to change some. Not giving up on the philosophy or the importance of that context, but being willing for the shape of that to be flexible given stage of life for some. There's something important to be said of viability for lovingly taking into account the familial and seasonal realities that people face. Living out the gospel is supposed to have the effect of filling your tanks with that $4.50 you know, a gallon premium. And, and not feeling like you're running up a descending escalator. Right? None of what I've said even mentioned different personalities. Varying relational capacities. And we so easily default to expecting that everyone will approach the things the same way that we do. The way that we're wired. Which means we're disappointed and we disappoint. And in all that though. God uses it. He uses all of it. Shaping us, forming us, teaching us to relate to people who are different than us in different life stages than us, teaching us to depend on him in the context of a community that's living out the gospel in all its weird ways. But we can also get so focused on what isn't going exactly right that we fail to enjoy the gift of community that God's already given to us. Another thing that we've learned, sometimes you just need a change. Um, like you've been in a GC for a while, maybe it's not going super well, um, no one's sinned against anyone, it's like, it's like it's just not working, nobody can put their thumb, you know, just like exactly on it, maybe it's, maybe it's personality, but no one's really just trying to avoid people who are different, like it's just not working, and that's okay, but that can be okay. Your involvement in a gospel community isn't, you know, till death do us part. <laughs> in fact, when gospel communities are really healthy, they multiply anyway. But if you find yourself in just a weird place, you know, would you reach out to your gospel community there? Would you reach out to one of us as, as pastors? We'd love to walk alongside you in that. If it makes sense, just help you connect into a different one. There's no formula. Gospel communities aren't perfect. They're the primary vehicle by which we pursue our mission to make and mature and unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God. We think they do a pretty good job of that, but they're not perfect. Let me close with uh, some concrete application here this morning, ways for, for you to maybe apply and, and, and be in prayer. Number one, would you pray for the gospel communities of Two Pillars Church? Like I said, there's 12 of them. Would you pray for their current leaders, your current leader, other ones that you know that are leading? Would you encourage them? Would you pray for us as a church as we move in the direction like we talked about last week of having both trained male and female uh, equipped leadership in each of our gospel communities? Would you pray for that? Number two, if you're newer around here, would you, would you prayerfully consider joining one? If that's you, just like come grab me, you know, before you leave today. Or if you got a jet, take one of those connection cards. You can mark it on there. Or we got a little link. Look at that, 2pc.me slash gc. You fill that out. We'd love it if you just come 
chat. We'd love to meet you and connect you in that way. Number three, if you've been around here for a long while, would you prayerfully consider starting a new one? We always need more. I know it's hard. It's hard to multiply them, but the aim with GCs isn't just that we would get together and live happily ever after, but that we'd move towards multiplying, sending out leaders to start new ones, making more contacts for more people for Jesus to draw to himself, to live out the gospel in community and on mission with others. To do that, like you don't have to be Yoda. You don't have to be a pastor or have a seminary degree or know the Bible inside and out. Okay, you just need to be a mature and maturing disciple of Jesus who is interested in helping cultivate a context for others to grow in their relationship with Jesus. If that's not you, number four, would you prayerfully ask how you might better cultivate gospel culture within your current gospel community. Cultivate it. Tend that. See yourself increasingly as a gospel culture creator and a gospel culture cultivator right where you currently are. Let me pray. We'll give ourselves to these things. Father, as we do these things, would we live lives devoted to you, devoted to your word, devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, living generously and praising you. As we do those things, those simple, ordinary things, Lord, would you renew our awe? God, we confess that that very often we want long-term fruit through short-term effort. Instead, would we give ourselves to the more slow and ordinary means of grace? Would we be awestruck by Jesus and his gospel? Some of us, we've been Christians for so long that it's easy to forget what it was like when it was new. Would you renew us this morning? Stir us to be increasingly devoted to you and your church and would you help us to live out the gospel of an old yet new hope together and praise in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to this audio from two pillars church feel free to share this audio with others but please do not alter or edit the content in any way For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.